Hi everyone, welcome to Street Sweeper. I'm Ricardo Rivo. And I'm Will Orr. Yeah. Full names. Full names now. We've learned <laughs> we've learned the thing about podcasts. People are asking, who are these people? <laughs> Is it secret? <laughs> if we wanted to stay secret, we wouldn't start a podcast. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about the Venice Biennale. Yeah, hot topic. Um, hot topic, architecture in the news. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the perfect year for us to talk about it because we don't have to go. We have a very good excuse not to go. Yeah, we don't have to go. And, 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 and we've seen it just as well as everyone else. Exactly. I was going to say, not only do we not have to go, but no one else has gone. Yes. So no one is going to call us on anything. Exactly. <laughs> We're going to end up talking about what we think the significance of this Biennale is historically and I guess in comparison to the 2016 Biennale. In order to do that, we're going to focus on these five audio recordings made by Hashim Sarkis, the curator. Yeah, uh, Sarkis has recorded uh, for you of those who haven't looked at the website. You probably shouldn't. Um, he has, <laughs> he has um, recorded like uh, five, uh, between three to five minute little, what he calls podcasts. Um, it's, yeah, just, which, it's just little, a little speech. And they, they, make, they make me feel pretty good about the quality of our audio recording. Right, yeah, 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 for sure. Like he <laughs> recorded it on a phone. <laughs> we, our, our, our technical competence in our uh, podcast is significantly superior to the Venice Biennale. <laughs> but anyway... Yeah, it's it's five little snippets yeah. where he's basically explaining the concept behind his uh, exhibition. There are five of them, and each one is basically taking on some major social question and trying to justify uh, Venice's importance to that social question and architectures. So it's it's really kind of a broad spectrum, uh, full defensive posture on every front. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. I guess it kind of has to be uh, for a thing like the Biennale, you have to do like the Biennale needs to be able to concentrate everything that exists in architecture today. That's the point of the Biennale, supposedly, right? Yeah, but I don't think it necessarily has to thematize it and conceptualize everything. Uh, I mean, I, I haven't, yeah. I don't know what like Aravena did with Report from the Front, but it had a clear method approach. Yeah. Uh, that didn't eat, like, I don't think Aravena needed to record, uh, like, precious snippets musing on, like, uh, the lion <laughs> in the garden. And, like, this one is more like academic. It's like, yeah. it, it, it needs to turn the thing into a discursive practice. And Sarkis, I guess, is academic, right? Yeah. 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 I think he teaches at uh, MIT, right? He's like uh, dean at MIT. I don't know. Whatever. Big big wig at MIT. Uh, and I guess part of the part of the we trick probably of should these, check these things. <laughs> part of the trick of these things is that he has to justify like Venice, basically. Like the the weirdness of Venice, the contradiction is that it's a, a very strange, atypical city, obviously, without much of a modern architectural history. I mean, especially the islands of Venice itself. Like we could we could talk about the whatever, region, yeah. Marghera, whatever. Um but he has to kind of justify uh, 
the importance of Venice and Venice as the site for this global architecture event yeah. and for the like social questions that are increasingly kind I mean, of Ravenna probably also didn't bother explaining why Venice was the ideal city to talk right, about right. the return to the report, the front. Yeah, yeah. Like, obviously, Venice isn't the front, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, there, there is, like, Calvino, there's no Italo Calvino moment from, from <laughs> Aravena's probably. Uh, okay, so let's begin with the first of these little clips, right? Yeah. So he starts with the mosaic, which is the flood barrier that was recently finished to protect Venice. The mosaic is a perfect example of geoengineering, a new technology, but really in the old tradition of the Hoover Dam and also of some medieval irrigation networks and even the Venetian canals themselves. It is also an example of geoarchitecture, as imagined by architects of the New Deal and by Le Corbusier, an architecture operating at the scale of geography, an architecture operating with geography, and an architecture operating to help redress some of the damage that architecture itself had created at the scale of geography and at the scale of the planet. The mosaic is, after all, an architectural line drawn into the sea, and when lifted, it becomes a bright yellow horizon that connects the dots of the archipelago and makes visible the ensemble of pieces, land, seawall, embankments, and technology. While it cannot be seen with one eye, it does represent a sense of connectivity between Venice and the whole world. And as fraught as geoengineering may be with dangers of negatively impacting the planet that we are trying to save, it does also open new frontiers for architecture. The line, as horizon, as a fragment of the circumference of the earth, elevates in its parsimony, precision and color, the importance of making visible at a local scale the changes to the planet as a whole. Yeah, for me, the starting point here is the line. <laughs> it's a starting point because it's where we left off last week, right? By accident. Uh, like the mosaic, this flood barrier, is read as a line. The line is is the architect again just like last time the line is the architectural figure the like the point where the line where engineering and architecture are combined right infrastructure and planning infrastructure whatever, planning in, in as much as they exist yeah in, in the discipline today and in the in the previous example it was the line is clearly a way to architecturalize planning to formalize and architecturalize engineering but here the line is just clearly a functional uh thing right? yeah this is so he starts with the mosaic as a way of saying, look, this is how like architecture being relevant to contemporary topics like climate change and uh, all this stuff, right? Yeah. But obviously the mosaic has is not an architectural object. No. Obviously the mosaic is an engineering project which has structural engineers, uh, infrastructure engineer. I don't, I don't know what kind of engineers, the hydraulic engineers, all sorts of engineers, the uh, ecological engineers. It had like it, it's it, it architects have contributed contributed nothing to it's obviously just an engineering project that architecture being useless as it is in the contemporary mode of like being a culture part of the cultural industries. Architecture yeah. doesn't produce technical solutions to problems like Venice thinking. No, and I think 
I think his reference to the New Deal uh, is also really telling here because it's not just engineering. Like like the, the climate change reference and the New Deal reference, this is basically his way, I think, of saying Venice is the avant-garde of a Green New Deal. Yeah. The Mose is a kind of Green New Deal. Like the new, like what yeah. makes the New Deal important historically is its social, economic, yeah, he, political, economic The link context. to the Hoover Dam is precious. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the symbolic object of the American New Deal. The thing is, obviously, you look at this, this has nothing to do with the New Deal. No. Zero. It's, it's not addressing climate change. No. This is protecting a little enclave from open air museum yeah from the consequences of climate change but it's absolutely nothing to do with actually addressing climate change whatsoever yeah which also shows the i mean i'm sure the engineers who actually did it know they're not solving climate change but architects because they are like localist morons <laughs> look at this oh we've saw venice is no longer sinking i mean it is but it's no longer sinking underwater. Therefore, climate change solved. We can continue having our exhibition for the next century <laughs> while yeah. the rest of the world floods. But not Venice, though. <laughs> yeah, and I think the, I mean, the, the New Deal, uh, like the, the New Deal is about its economic context, like overcoming the depression through a switch to Keynesianism or whatever. Yeah. Uh, nothing like that is at stake here. No. So I think... I mean, my, my take on this is like the starting point is this is ridiculous. It's engineering being appropriated by architecture and architecturalized. Like the line, he reads the line as a horizon. It becomes a form. Unlike the, the Saudi Arabia line, it's like a retroactive architecturalization. Yeah. Turning it into yeah, a Yeah, I thought it's actually going, how can I make some money out of this thing I have nothing to do with? But my 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 after thinking about it for a moment, I think it's probably actually the right reading. Like this is architecture to a certain mm. extent. Like unlike the Hoover Dam, uh, or maybe maybe it's not architecture per se, but it's much closer to the Saudi Arabia example because this is an engineering project about saving real estate. Right. This is not a productive project as part of an economic political transformation. Right. This is not Keynesianism. This is not the welfare state. This right. is not socialism. Yeah. This is protecting uh, it's not even planning, pre-existing maybe. property holdings, basically. Right. I mean, you can put it in terms of like world herit heritage property, but this is not producing any economic uh, other than, again, just like the Saudi Arabia example, this is just about tourism. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, exactly. It's, it's the services sector stuff of which, of course, and this is what makes this spiel so funny. The discursive architectural project uh, he's constructing on top of an infrastructural project is itself the thing that the barrier is protecting. Yeah. The barrier the, the barrier has nothing to do with the discourse, but it's protecting the yeah. the discourse because the discourse is Venice. Yeah. Exactly. The Venice is this kind of basically services sector cultural industries grift yeah <laughs> that's the whole thing that it is so the 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 mosaic is ultimately like the the medieval wall enclosure that venice never had when it was an expansionist which is what these people call empire. the commons yeah the commons is when they the cultural industries pseudo avant-garde 
yeah. is in charge of producing a concept of the public that fits the contemporary actual power structures. There, there is some controversy about the Mose, though, right? Because, like, this is what I just saw in the news that uh, uh, cruise ships have returned to Venice, one, mm. one particular cruise ship, mm. uh, after a promise at the national level that cruise ships would not return after the pandemic. And there was a, a protest uh, against this called No Big Ships, and then a counter-progress, Yes Big Ships. Pro- protest. Uh, a, a protest and then a counter-protest right. in favor of, uh, of big ships. Uh, and guess who's like a leading activist? I mean, you're not going to guess. The nephew of Massimo Cacciari, Tommaso, Tommaso Cacciari, is uh, a prominent leader of the No Big Ships movement. And also... And also of the other one? It would be funny if he was the leader of both. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's that's perfect negative thought right there, being (laughs) being against both, being on both sides. Uh, But on top of the no big ships, there's a no no mose movement. Mm. Uh, So I think Which is probably environmentalist, funnily enough. I think it is environmentalist, environmentalist. actually. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's part of a like some sort of local anti-tourist thing, right? Too right. Yeah. So Massimo Cacciari, we should say, uh, was a really influential figure in architecture discourse. He was a friend and collaborator with Manfredo Tafuri mm-hmm. when Tafuri was in Venice. Uh, he was kind of a. I don't think he, he wasn't. He wasn't actually an architecture teacher. He was a. No. He was a philosophy teacher yeah. basically, and he would he was do a theory guy. He's a theory guy. Uh, I think in some interview, Tafuri talks about how Kachari gave a lecture on on Marx and kind of, I think he was going through the transformation problem or something like, like that, and basically disproved Marxism. <laughs> <laughs> he disproved like checkmate atheists. <laughs> yeah, it's basically like, like this is a moment when leftists are, were doing exactly what uh, right-wingers do on YouTube right now, which yeah. is like disproving Marxism and like... Theory of value, debunked. Debunked, yeah. <laughs> Massimo Cacciari, interviewed by Ben Shapiro. Go back to the 19th century uh, leftists. <laughs> but he wrote, he wrote extensively on architecture too. Like he had the book uh, Architecture and Nihilism. Yeah. He, he was uh, like in between philosophy theory and politics theory. But at the time, this was like heavily filtered through culture theory as well. Yeah, it, I mean that's the context in which Tafuri is beginning to uh, publish his stuff, right? It's, it's, yeah. he's, he's not publishing stuff in architectural theory; he's publishing stuff in political theory publications, right? And at the same time, the political theory people are talking about architecture because that's that's the framework of the development of this kind of postmodern, post-Marxist, neo-quasi-pseudo-post-Marxist <laughs> lefts, which are basically what defines. Italian production at this time and what makes it so influential and popular along proto-neoliberal Europe. Yeah, and there's a specific choice of reference you see in Kachari, which I think we see a lot more now, which is this combination of uh, sort of left post-Marxist references with German uh, yeah. phenomenology. Um, and, I mean, Nietzsche, Nietzsche's big reference, then Heidegger, um, it's what it's what you like to call the Lombard League. The Lombard League, <laughs> yes. It, yeah, it's it is the Lombard League. I mean, this is this is what's fashionable now again as like the new left in architecture, right? It like it's really just again the postmodern seventies from Italy, 
again being sold to like Anglo-American audiences as they were like in the yeah. 80s, not in the 70s themselves, but in the 80s later, later right? But it, it, it's the whole thing all over again. Yeah. Um, repeating exactly the same mistakes, exactly the same way of moving from the left to a kind of a cultural postmodern neoliberalism, like yeah. moving from politics proper to like the the progressivism of the cultural scene of the radic of radical culture. That is what is happening at the time. Although, I mean, we, we, we could at a certain point like do an entire actual episode about it, although we already have a significant chunk about yeah. Italian, uh, Italian theory. Uh, but yeah, like, anyway, we probably shouldn't go into this. Yeah, the main, the main, just, just the one final thing I'd say is that uh, Kachari is famous for coming up with this theory of negative thought. Right. Uh, which is kind of his take, I guess, on negative dialectic or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and the gist of it is basically a kind of politics, uh, a kind of anti-utopian politics of just pure tactics. And then his actual political practice was just uh, entryism into the centrist parties, basically. Uh, I mean, there was just, an entryism into the Communist Party there for was a while. First, there was an entryism into the Communist Party. Then he shifted then, to entryism then into the centrist. Then they gave up with that. Then enters him into the centrism. So it just like it's it's a philosophy of leftists becoming neoliberals. Yes, I mean from their perspective, the Communist Party was centrist initially. Like they are radicals, and the Communist Party was centrist, which to a certain point was probably true. Like this is the era where reformism starts, right? Yeah, the center though in those terms is like far to the left of uh, yes of anything we talk about today. Yeah, but the uh, yeah essentially. This is how, where the problem begins. We don't like Kachari. We don't like this Italian theory part. And we, I, I, I genuinely love that Kachari's nephew is in this stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is involved in this stuff. Now it makes perfect sense. It's a pretty great kind of generational thing. Like the, the, the first generation was from the 68 era that like has this whole uh, narrative around being a, rad a radical militant turned like establishment centrist basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and then they're like the next generation are like basically kind of punk anarchists doing like a Hades. extinction rebellion protest basically. The bridge, the archipelago and the network. The section of the architecture biennale across borders is going to be housed in the Giardini in a site that since the 19th century has traditionally celebrated art and architecture as expressions of national identities, essentializing boundaries and borders through culture. The Giardini in the 17th Architecture Biennale will also be a site of bridging across borders. Venice is only possible because of its bridges, all 417 of them, as each of these bridges traverses from one part of the city to the other, it takes you between here and there. It creates a sensation of crossing borders, of being suspended, usually with a privileged viewpoint and a short reprieve to position yourself not here, not there, but in the world, outside the confines of bounded spaces and territories. These in-between moments are so important in every city, in every experience, but in Venice they acquire a frequency and rhythm that makes you feel that you are at once in Venice and in the world, in the present and the future, looking over and across. <laughs> in his definitive book on the history of the Mediterranean called <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 
I'm going to stop him right there. He's just saying words. He's yeah. just saying the bridge and speaking for a minute about the bridge with some words in it. Yeah. But like, it's even worse because it's like the bridge as a linguistic signifier. It's uh, uh, what the bridge means as a concept. And obviously, I mean, in this section, then he goes on to basically say that architecture makes bridges. Architecture, uh, uh, like to build bridges is the mission of architecture. Right. And it's this kind of typical thing that you see frequently nowadays in academic writing and it's like from students to like basically everyone else. Yeah. Which is this like inversion of the metaphor. Like the reason why metaphors exist in normal language, normal people use metaphors to better explain something real. <laughs> These people want to make do reality to better explain the metaphor. <laughs> like, architecture is a discursive project and they turned their challenge is to take the metaphor and turn it into a literal thing. Consistently, Venice's architecture has always aspired to be multiple or elsewhere and to create an archipelago of identities, not just of islands. Byzantine, Roman, Armenian, Jewish, Moorish, Frankish, among others. Every city, after all, strives to be a world upon itself, but only a few achieve it. The city of Venice is at once a bridge, an archipelago, and a network of exchange. One of the aspirations of the 17th Architecture Biennale is to highlight the way architecture can itself bridge across borders, be they within a city, between a city and the hinterland, or across territories, bringing together people divided by politics or by geography. I think, I mean, metaphors, metaphor is the end game of architectural discourse. Because what architecture is, is determined by economic context, basically, and what the discipline is capable of positioning itself to get and its social function. Metaphor is like the point of desperation at the end of that process where there basically is nothing directly offered and the vagueness of the discipline asserts itself as like a general concept. Right. Architects have an important role to play in imagining how these boundaries can be softened and straddled. Importantly, some of these projects exhibited in the Biennale will dwell on the spaces between neither here nor there, imagining architecture as bridge, like the bridges of Venice, from where alternative identities and worlds can be imagined. Everything is architecture. Architecture is putting things together. Uh, architecture is bridging. Architect like, arch at the end of the day, the discipline of architecture is just metaphor on top of some, some brute economic facts. Now, this is a good point. Uh, ar architecture, architecture is about bringing like, basically everything together. And in the same way, architectural discourse is just or, about putting, yeah. jumbling any words together. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And it works, it's fine, because that, it's an accurate representation of the architectural project. Yeah, and you get all the variations of this. Architecture is about bringing things together. Architecture is about separating things because it's political to separate things, to divide things. Uh, architecture is about connecting things. It's smooth, it's striated, it's, it's all... Architecture is about order. 
architecture is about space. All these things are just metaphors. What is yeah. it? What does this mean, really? Yeah. You, I mean, in this case, I mean, in the contemporary world, architecture is about real estate property, right? Yeah. Uh, and the metaphor is just is is the discourse that the discipline constructs as its ideology on top of that reality. Yeah. The uh, here is where actually the Venice Venice actually helps him as an actual concrete example. Yeah, this one's much clearer than the because um, specifically what you just said about architecture being about bringing people together, but it also being about dividing because dividing is political. Yeah. These two, this is the fundamental schizophrenia of contemporary, uh, like political or engaged architecture or whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. It, it's, this, it's these two things. It has this notion of politics as dividing in a kind of abstract way, but it also needs to have the liberal, like, bring people together and let's all be friends. Yeah. Um, of course, this is an expression of uh, a kind of a, a structural contradiction within liberal politics itself. In the sense that it needs to affirm difference constantly, and but construct a yeah. totality of tolerance of all the differences. Right. Um, but this here, Venice helps him because it it it, 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 it can just do the whole archipelago thing, arch, the archipelago of heterotopias thing. Yeah. With the direct example of Venice actually actual being arch an archipelago, yeah. and the then metaphor has a, has and a then the architecture yeah. is the thing that takes takes these islands and brings them together as a bridge. Venice is an archipelago at a physical level and it has bridges. Architecture, let's, let's break every other city into little islands as well, each of them having their own little identity interiority, each of them an enclave of hipster uh, gentrifiers. And architecture facilitates that by constructing the islands while pr pretending that the islands are bridges. The term social equipment or social infrastructure is rarely used in the planning and architectural language in English. However, it's very common in French, Spanish and Italian. In Italian, the term attrezzature collettive is used. This term suggests a continuity between the different forms of public infrastructure that support the city. Some are physically connected as networks, even if sometimes invisible, like water systems, sewage systems, electricity networks and roads. Others are visible as freestanding objects, like schools, hospitals, sports centers, parks and markets, even if they are not always physically connected. The continuity and connectivity among these structures tends to be stronger when they are public institutions. Irrespectively, however, they always aspire to represent their communities through their dignified presence not to say monumentality. Today's society has no doubt different needs and equipment, and the emerging social groups register their visibility differently. Their identities and their own forms of integration in the city also differ from group to group. Some still prefer the separated or iconic presence. Others do imagine a continuity between their institutions and their communities. Through the shaping of these institutions, architecture could be the means by which these communities express their identities, but also open up to their surroundings. Okay, so this bit is like really boring. Uh, it really doesn't add much to anything he says before or after. I mean, this this whole this whole like the third podcast feels redundant between the second and fourth to me. 
I mean, it, it, it makes an important point. Before he starts saying uh, architecture is bridges, then bridges are actually the islands. And mm. this is the part where he says the islands are buildings. Uh, and by way of building islands, the buildings are bridges. That's the like logic of the the logics of the thing. The uh, I mean, all, all, all he's saying in this part is um, architecture connects people by making uh, discrete objectual things that have a distinct identity, and is appropriating the category of public services, public institutions, to legitimize what effectively is, is what he's talking about, which is just Bilbao effect, uh, Rossian um, right. artifacts. Uh, urban artifacts. Uh, and therefore, uh, Bilbao effects uh, are good, if we can make them uh, express some kind of authentic community identity thing that exists in the context of the city. And that's it. That, that's all he's doing. Or sometimes they bridge between those those two different ones somehow. It's just appropriation. It's just appropriating the contemporary political concerns about the reconstruction of the welfare state to propose more neoliberalism uh, uh, together with the uh, kind of representational identitarianism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the social utility here is culture. Yeah. And culture has been through identification. The the method for commodifying architecture and making it valuable to real estate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, next one. Yeah. Historical anthropologists of ancient cities have proposed that a city begins when two houses share a wall. When two neighbors decide to economize and to literally lean on each other. We know of many early settlements which were very populous and dense, but according to this beautiful theory, they do not become cities until they start sharing walls. Now imagine the collective will that plays out here. How about we share walls, someone says to someone else, and the city begins. I love the starting point here. It's, it's this kind of, uh, it's become really popular it seems like in the last year or two, this kind of origin mongering yes, in like uh, anthropology and uh, paleontology, whatever. Like, I mean, this is really popular in architecture. It's really popular in like uh, pop sci Silicon Valley nonsense. Uh, this kind of like paleo pop culture. I blame stuff. Foucault. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, just, I just generally blame Foucault. I, I, I Foucault blame. doesn't go back this far. No, but he invents this whole, like, understanding thing is the uh, uh, archaeology of its origins. I, I love how he says Capitalism like, is actually just critiquing feudalism, which then is just actually go critiquing the invention of agriculture. Right, and right, that's, right. And that's what all, all of these people do now. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I love the... Okay, so how does the city start? You have two people, and one says to the other, "Hey, how about we share a wall?" And thus, the city is <laughs> the born. The city is born. It's like kind of biblical, uh, <laughs> yeah, preposterous that, biblical origin. That has story. a nice sort of um, uh, the life of Brian, Monty yeah. Python uh, thing. Yeah, it's almost satirical. And yeah, it's, uh, except that he's taking it seriously. <laughs> In the section as new households. The participants in the 17th Architecture Biennale look at how we can reimagine the household beyond the individual dwelling and beyond the isolation of apartments 
by drawing from experimentation and alternative forms of households and alternative collective dwellings from around the world. In Venice, the sharing even extends to the seemingly most autonomous of residential forms, that of the Palazzo. In his book on Venice and the Renaissance, historian Manfredo Tafuri, The palace is about sharing. Did you know that? Did you know that Tafuri said that the palace is about sharing? That's his like... That was his whole thing, right? That's yes, what, of course. Yeah. It's all about sharing. Like it's the whole thing that Tafuri says in his books on Venice is that it's really about sharing. This guy is a hack fraud. You do not deserve to say Tafuri's name. Go away. In his book on Venice and the Renaissance, <laughs> highlights the examples of the palazzos that Sansovino designed on irregular lots, and how these irregularities got absorbed in rotations and sharing of walls between courtyards in the same house, each courtyard registering the other, even if behind Wait, the, it's the same house as a wonderful inflection. A palazzo has many courtyards. And not. It's sharing. The way I read this, I mean, this is obviously where you where it becomes obvious that we are in the post-2016 era of the Biennale. Right. Right. Up till now, it's like the contemporary themes, but now it becomes, it, 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 it reaches a certain level of practicality of like, let's focus on the program of housing. I, yeah, it's, it's trying to deal with the need, like the housing problem through the tools that have been left to the, to the discipline after however many decades of austerity and the end of public planning, public uh, uh, building production, public housing, whatever. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's trans- in doing that, it's transforming what the housing problem is into another yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a real problem that makes it very important for architecture to indeed look at housing. And it's great that architecture is focusing on that a lot nowadays. Yeah. Um, but... What we have systematically in like high culture architecture, architecture capital A, and obviously Biennale as the center of it, is um, okay. So we have a housing problem, but now we're, we're going to focus on that. But we don't want to abandon the essentially um, architecture as a production of exceptional um, qualities in the urban. Um, how can we make housing about that? But like the housing problem about doing this, and the answer is always the same. It's let's do a courtyard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, lack of housing, the unaffordability of housing, people having to uh, like live with roommates well into their like middle-aged years, uh, not being able to afford uh, enough large enough housing to have a family if you want to have a family. Um, overcrowding, like all the issues that we think of as housing problems, homelessness, uh, become transformed into how can we design a thing so that like it's politically progressive and good to have roommates? Yes. Uh, how can we, how can we accept that condition and then valorize it and basically produce upscale versions of it? Right. Because at the end of the day, this is always, uh, like a middle-class project, right? Uh, like poor people yeah, it's, are just going to be lifestyles. stuck. And it becomes, yeah. it becomes very clear that it's about lifestyles. Poor people are going to be stuck in those conditions 
but they're they're uh, they're saved uh, ideologically in the valorization of living together, and then the middle class pays that off through like a cultural expression of that ideology, through like whatever collective uh, commune yeah. or like whatever that they get. Yeah, and it says communities and collective a lot, but it has nothing to do with actual communities, how communities actually function in the city, yeah. how they emerge, how they are constructed. Uh, and it has nothing to do with any kind of collective, the construction of any collective process. In fact, this is precisely the way of interpreting the collective in such a way that is entirely compatible with uh, the continuation of private real estate development of the city. Uh, it's what he, this is not about collective, but not about community. It's about what I what I call neoliberal communalism. It's about creating a sense of communitarian identity between privileged individuals inside basically their 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 uh, gated community, mm -hmm. but the gated community that appears as a, a left wing project. And this is more or less what everyone is doing now. This yeah. is the core uh, project of engaged political architecture nowadays, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I think his his reference to Palazzi here is is obviously uh, ending with the palace around <laughs> which obviously exists around the courtyard, which even yeah. says it has a wonderful fountain in the middle of it. Yeah, is that is is really great. Yeah, this is the this is the point that I, I palaces. Well, you know, like the the families of the nobles were a community and a collective. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, the, the, not only were the families themselves a collective, including their, like, indentured servants or whatever. Yeah, they but, were members of the family, the servants, but like the dog. The, but the ruling class of, of Venice as a whole was a clear community. Yes. They were an extremely right. tight-knit, solidaristic oligarchy. Yes. Like, the, the Serene Republic, La Serenissima, is based on this class solidarity of the ruling elite. Right, and this is why Venice is such for me is such a perfect ideological fixation for like basically for a, a liberal bourgeois subject. Yeah, it's an idea of I mean it's not a tyranny. There's no dictator. It's not totalitarian. It's a republic, so it has a commu communalism. It's not a tyranny in the sense that there is no one yeah, member no of the ruling class no that rules over the other members of the ruling class. There's no king, there's no emperor. It's a collective of the ruling class. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I read somewhere, I don't remember how long, I, I'm not sure if it's strictly true, but it's probably true in a lot of instances that um, like each island was a community because it was like sort of a private property slash fiefdom hmm. of a lord. Right. And each of these wonderful bridges that he talks about was had a toll booth mm. on it. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, these were literal closed communities with a clear sense of identity in the sense that the common folk were born in an island and died in that island without ever leaving that island. Yeah, they weren't. They, in they were indentured to whatever their yes. particular lord was. The, yeah. uh, the the vast majority of the of the, of the population of Venice in this uh, uh, archipelago of hetero heterotopic uh, archipelago that it is, just literally were stuck their entire lives in the island that they, they didn't get to cross the bridge. Right. The bridge was not for them. <laughs> This is also in the in the the bridge was a mechanism of controlling. In the reference to Tafuri, um, Tafuri's uh, a book on on Renaissance Venice and the Renaissance. Uh, Tafuri talks about how, as part of this collective solidarity 
and connected to this theme of like sharing certain aspects of their palaces in the city. They, uh, they didn't really invest in uh, gaudy Baroque architecture. Like there was a kind of a level of decorum mm. that the ruling class uh, kind of like accepted as a kind of their own elite social contract. They were all Obamas. Yeah, this is exactly, <laughs> this, is, this is the ruling. It was a republic of Obamas. This is, this is a, a ruling class with decorum, with respect, with politeness, with all the liberal fixations uh, <laughs> that we see today. Turns out it was indeed just like the Pentagon. <laughs> yeah, Pentagon is right because like the Arsenale basically was the original Pentagon. Yeah. Right? It was like the military industrial complex complex <laughs> of Venice. <laughs> like imagine in, in, in 400 years whatever the architecture biennale festival is of the, you know, revolutionary federation of earth. Uh, imagine if we have the, whatever that future utopian biennale is, we like having it in the it's actual Pentagon. Gonna be in the Pentagon. <laughs> it's going to be in the Pentagon. <laughs> and everybody's going to be writing about the archipelago of, of like the layers of the Pentagon. No, it won't because it will be a revolutionary federation. Of earth. Ah, but, right. um, but uh, if it isn't, <laughs> If it isn't, if it's the Earth Empire, yeah. If yeah, it's exactly it's going to be the Earth Empire. Oh no! And the um, the uh, architecture biennale will be on how the Pentagon slash DC was this uh, nexus point, this intersection between yeah. east and west, where the shores <laughs> of Europe and the shores of Asia met. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> And when you're standing in the... Uh, at the center of the Pentagon. In the center of the Pentagon. With the radiant facades around yeah. you. And you can see the, it connects. It, there's no better experience of being on a bridge than it being in the center of the Pentagon. <laughs> in the center of the world. Here, everywhere. Yes. <laughs> Neither here nor there. It's just when you're there, you feel like you own the world. Because you do. <laughs> The most serene republic uh, of West Virginia, however, <laughs> the Pentagon is. It, yeah, the, where, where's the place where all the ex-presidents live? They have their villas. Oh, I on? don't know. I don't know. There's a place where they all have Martha's Vineyard or something. Is that close? That could called? be something for like sure. That? Yeah. Martha's Vineyard, some is like, like East Coast. Uh, yeah. Up, so up. Venice is like Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. It's a gated community of very serene <laughs> Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the last one. Among diverse beings, <laughs> the lion this in the garden. fucking thirsty. There is a lion on the cover of the English edition of Giorgio Agamben's book, The Kingdom and the Garden. The lion is shown in the Garden of Eden, living in harmony with other creatures. Yet this Eden, according to Agamben, is on earth. It is not outside. It is not somewhere else. Following Dante's interpretation, Agamben argues that we can recover this garden. It is attainable. The ambitions of the 17th Architecture Biennale are to bring 
architecture to help in recreating this harmony among diverse beings and to reimagine the garden. It may be a coincidence that Agamben is taught in Venice and that the lion is the symbol of the city. But in the Biennale, we hope to turn the lion into a symbol of coexistence among humans and other species, including perhaps mythological ones. Why not? The aim of the Biennale is to bring the lion back in the Giardini, not only as a mythological symbol of the city, but also as a symbol for coexistence and for a better future for Venice and the world. The thirst continues. It's like he says the word identity like 32 times here. Yeah. I mean, it's really funny. It's like he knows some words that he's like no one on the left actually talks like this. Even the more like hardcore it Paul left. No one talks no, this like is, this. This like, is like this, PR firm stuff. This this yeah. this he he heard some words and wants to like bring it in. It, it, it this this has a kind of a very strong like how do you do fellow kids vibe yeah, going you're right, on. You're right. It's extreme like it 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 like it sounds like 2010 Tumblr politics. <laughs> it's completely out of fashion. No one speaks like this. This is completely just boomer uh, Is he a boomer? I don't know yeah, if he's a yeah, boomer. Yeah, for sure. It's yeah. it's it's just great. It's so so grifty, so grifty, and so out of touch. Yeah, the the how do you do? It's it's like he's he's a he's a teacher, right? So it's it's talking to students uh, in this way, right? Yeah, I mean, I love again. I love the Agamben reference with the lion. <laughs> like Agamben is is just a biblical literalist. Like the Garden of Eden. No, it's actually on Earth. Yes, it's actually real. <laughs> Like this is what you see. What you see on like a Jehovah's Witness pamphlet is like a little drawing with like a lamb and a lion lying on the grass with like people and everybody's happy and everybody's getting along because that's like uh, that's paradise as as ordained by God. But like again, like this is just ridiculous gaslighting. At the same time, like the lion eats other animals. Yes, he's the lion. <laughs> yeah, who is the lion here? How does the how is the lion compatibilized with the lamb, with the garden? Like the what is what is the what is the lion in the metaphor? The lion is supposed to be humanity in the metaphor, right? Like we are we are consuming and destroying the planet, but an Eden in which like the lion humanity is compatibilized with the rest of the planet is possible, right? The lion is neoliberal depredation. Yeah. Obviously, and predation. Yes. Yeah, and uh, he is proposing the lion. He's the the lion is the project. Yeah. He's proposing putting the lion, or, or rather, he's not putting the lion. The lion's there. He's just giving it a kind of a, a, a shape. He's proposing the compatible. He's proposing that people don't don't rise up against the lion. Is what he's doing by yeah. saying, actually, you know that place you live in, terrible. It's actually the Garden of Eden. <laughs> right, right. The reality of where we are is paradise. Right, right. So let the lion be. Yeah, and then obviously uh, just like trying to get all the shots in at uh, this kind of object-oriented ontology animal shtick. Yeah. It's like a necessary inclusion, I guess. The snake is a subject. Yeah, the Garden of Eden thing is basically... Like, America is already great. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly correct. <laughs> Build back better. Build back better. <laughs> sink, sink down 
Sink back deeper. Sink back deeper. (laughs) (laughs) So we planned after talking about the the curator's statements regarding the whole Biennale, we planned to go through each pavilion, uh, at least like looking through them, trying to think of something interesting to say about them. Yeah, what the are the ten, what are the trends and tendencies of that of contemporary mainstream architecture nonsense that would be present there? Blah blah blah. How many of them would be courtyards? Yeah, we're gonna play like a drinking game, basically, like drink if there's a courtyard. Shot. It's um, it, we can't do it. It's too boring. They're mostly courtyards, but yeah, it's too boring. It's too boring. They're, they're it's pointless. Like, it's not, there's no material there. We're not. That's nothing to do. They're, they they oscillate between the uh, harmless, the irritating, and the uh, uh, not in an interesting way. Do you think this is the curator's fault for not giving a more specific brief to the whole thing? Because I feel like, I mean, if we were there, maybe it would be more interesting. There'd be more things we could pick up on. Right. But it just seems like the statements that all the individual pavilions make just default to invoking togetherness, community. And then there's a courtyard, and that's it. Yeah. I mean, some of them refer back to indigenous communities in the countries of origin. Some of them talk about just generic notions of togetherness fabricated through cultural uh, industries, blah, blah, blah. Some of them are more obviously gentrifying stuff. Some of them are more obvious uh, kind of reinvigorating uh, collectivity in the neoliberal era by way of some like traditional form of some sort yeah but it's it's the Cana- always the canadian the same. one the canadian one just tries to like skate by on on uh, on canadian cuteness basically <laughs> without invoking any serious problems yeah not good sorry guys no yeah but i think you're right the um the uh, curate, curatorial direction of not giving a direction of just defaulting to uh, everybody. Um, everybody try to make whatever woke statement yeah, whatever, you can make. Yeah, basically. make some woke statement framing what is just it, just one basic uh, part of the typical amalgamation of mainstream architectural culture. Yeah, and that's it. It's just not interesting. It has no. It has no project. That's true. It's something that, at least when you have a project, like uh, uh, what's his face in 2016, Aravena, like Aravena had in 2016, a project. At least you can go after something and say, like, this has a discourse. This has an angle. What is the angle? What are the goods? What are the bads? What are the problems? What are the contradictions? This is just. This is what's up. This is the scene. This is the state of the scene. Just must be, make it look Clinton, <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, there must be like a like an historical logic here. Like 2016, obviously had a had an historical context, political crisis in uh, like Britain and and the U.S., economic crisis throughout the West in general. Uh, I'm sure there are other political conflicts, crises at the same time. But 2016 uh, had a clear kind of break political break yeah. quality. Yeah. And this one just feels like everybody kind of default defaulting. It's like, kind of a return to normal. It's it's a return to normal. It's nor- the Biden uh, exhibition. It's the return to normalcy exhibition. I it's it's almost like the crisis is so bad at this point 
but there isn't the pressing like Trump isn't the uh, the the animating threat. Uh, so you can have a degree of returning to normal, but it just it just defaults to a kind of moral pathos around like just continuously invoking togetherness. Um, so it's a return to normal mixed with a kind of uh, depressed. Uh, but that's what a return to normal is. Yeah, it, this is really right. is just the Biden exhibition. It's everything is back to before 2016 again, but we need to do a little bit of like moral grandstanding on 2016 uh, stuff. Yeah. We need to do some moral um, gesture. Yeah, there's a performative dimension to the politics on top of a kind of like lack of actual militancy and commitment on any specific issue. And but and all of the militant stuff that became sort of institutional in the post twenty sixteen Aravena framework, all of the stuff that came up came out as a sort of alternative to the neoliberal market or framing itself as such, yeah. has now been institutionalized and functions now right. within the moral performativity structure. Right. It's strange that. In this case, re return to normal manifests itself as imagination, return to imagination. Because in the, in the Aravena one, report from the front or whatever, it was, it was clearly not about using your imagination, but like going and actually seeing what's happening in the world. Yeah. Like responding yeah. to the real, yeah. responding yeah. to the world. And now that it's back to normal, it's returning to like imagining togetherness. How will we live together? So it's not premised on what normalcy actually is. Uh, it's kind of a dialectical reversal where normalcy is an imaginary future where like the crisis and the real is not about imagination. Yeah, I mean, imagination has been the uh, framework of our architectural production in the cultural fields as in the new avant-garde era, right? That like it's yeah. the architect imagines, does the sort of escapes forward from the neoliberal framework. Yeah by imagining a radical future. And that's just stasis. Like imagination is just status quo stasis for the discipline. Yeah. Imagination is architecture not changing, not addressing the world. Yes, yes. It's it, just it, it's, it's the way of framing, uh, serving the contemporary powers that be in a way that presents as transformative. Uh, I mean, that it's, it's just in avant-garde culture. We already covered this in the first couple. But of there's, there's a bit of a but, twist here because it's in in kind of passing by, uh, like one of the pavilions, the Argentine pavilion, really reminded me of '70s kind of literary architecture, like neo-rationalist, but with like an injection of this kind of narrative quality, like Scolari or Tigerman, all these postmodern kind of narrative. Like you do a painting and write a poem, and that's architecture. So it, it, it's it's a kind of, it's 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 reverting back to a moment before postmodernism really found its economic niche, in a way. Like it, it's entering back into this kind of like academic echo chamber, and then the actual threshold for being operative to capital is left to the margins of this. I think that's also partly why it's not that interesting because none of this stuff actually seems that operative to capital. Like it doesn't, it's not that bad in that sense. I disagree with that though. I think it does function. 
the the challenge of capital the challenge of architecture in service of capital today is that the gentrifying dynamics uh, need the reframing and this is what i think is the, the post 2016 context constructed well and this is i think like what 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 we see as a return to normal is is we're not talking about return to normal here necessarily as like it's breaking with what 2016 established. No, this is the logical consequences consequence of the internal contradictions of the 2016 moment. Yeah. The 2016 moment is a let's look at reality and stop pretending that we're uh, luminary visionaries. Uh, let's stop the architecture of imagination and look at the real problems that exist in the world. But it all it had from its genesis in that very moment it already had an angle of how can we imagine yeah. new forms of responding to the real to serve the real interests because the old ones are not working anymore and how can we frame them in a way where the general faith and the neoliberal establishment and the and the neoliberal architecture of the neoliberal establishment is clearly falling apart. Yeah. The Guggenheim effects in the traditional way are no longer working. People don't like them. Yeah. Uh, you can't sell them on anybody anymore, on the, on the local community. We're going to regenerate your area this way. Everyone knows that you're just going to kick them out by raising the rents. Um, it, it, that's gone. Uh, at the pol at a actual political level, people are going left. You start having uh, this demand for the reconstruction of the welfare state, and that's the most moderate demand you have now at this point. And it's pretty, it's too way too radical even for what the powers that be accept. Um, and so you need to construct, okay, we're going to do neoliberal housing models now by way of doing half a house and presenting that as an opportunity for the uh, working class to construct the other, authentically construct the other half of the house. And this is a report from the front and the radical project that presents essentially a neoliberal interpretation of the, what the welfare state is in architecture in terms of social housing, right? Th this is the, what this is what's already embedded in the 2016 moment. But this, moment. Is, this is my point. But this the, is my at point. This, at this moment, what you have is the logical outcome of that, which is it just became the pre the 2016 moment just became the pre 2016 moment with slightly tweaked discursive elements. Yeah, but my my point is that the tw the 2016 one. I'm not saying it was like the true revolutionary exhibition of architecture. Obviously. No, it had, in responding to the real, it, it began constructing or like continuing the process of developing ideological and like pseudo-technical solutions to the crisis. They would put architecture back and in. And pseudo-economical and pseudo-financial. Yeah, That's an interesting tweak there. Definitely. But that was all operative. This doesn't seem operative. This seems like those, the like the whole fetishization of collectivity outside of its real contexts. Um, that's still, that was already in 2016. It was there and it's back, uh, in like every single project is a courtyard in this one, but it doesn't seem, it doesn't have that economic logic. It doesn't have like the Aravena half house neoliberal twist on, on the thing. It doesn't have the operativity and it retreats to this kind of, uh, like early postmodernism in seclusion basically. So it, it, it's clearly still has the same ideological contradictions that make it politically problematic. But I don't really read this as having the same operative power that the 2016 one had. This is like a watered down version. 
like architects attempts to get back in the drive driver's seat by managing the contradictions between capital and like po- and politics. I I think it failed basically. Yes, but I I think this is operative in the sense that it is uh, yes it is watered down which is in in its own way kind of the operative thing today again it's the biden moment uh but it is also kind of turning right wing and and not in just Mm. neoliberal sense in the sense of like it's the what you're see as just because it was just it's reinforcing the internalization the internality, the ivory tower of our architectural production, but I, I, and we see, we see it in the discourse of uh, the, the the curator guy, right? The, the uh, discussion kind of reaches a point where it becomes unclear what this means by constructing communitarian identities around the sort of notion of the architectural object that spatializes that identity, and that's what the spatial contract here is. It's not a spatial contract of, in, in the sense of it's giving more space to people by way of a new social contract. It's really a, the spatial contract is a qualitative difference mm-hmm. from the from the social contract. It's about the communitarian identity as a, produced by an, an architecturalization of social life in a way that obviously revolves always always about that. That's why the courtyards are so present. It revolves around the notion of this kind of radical interiority. And I think this is becoming more increasingly and clearly left uh, right wing. Yeah, it's becoming more I, I traditional trad values, conservative, uh, safeguard uh, parts of the city from the capitalist urban. Uh, and it, it's not just even about let's safeguard the uh, integrity of the gentrifier the, of the emerging gentrifier communities. Uh, in their process of destroying the local working class communities. It's also about trying to project on the working class communities, on the local communities, popular communities, senses of partialized identity at the cultural level. I see what you're saying. And I think, and and I understand how it's operative ideologically in a new way, but it doesn't seem operative, uh, institutionally or like materially in a way that matches the, what 2016 was operating was was offering but this is because, like, because like, what you said the crisis is so bad yeah but that that, that, operation, that operativity no longer exists the operativity exactly now is just ideological that, exactly that's the problem like this is not like like if if the half a house offered a way to sell some kind of debt to working class people like to get to somehow just inject more people into the debt system. This is no longer possible. Like they're not offering that anymore. They're basically asking poor people to uh, like ideologically be generous towards their austerity. And then they're offering maybe some middle-class people a way to aesthetically appropriate. And uh, I mean, even middle-class people are also falling uh, into proletarianization as well. So there's a there's a boundary where middle class people ideologically adapt themselves, either through this kind of trad trad right wing thing, or through some sort of like liberal hippie thing. I guess um, the difference between the two is blurred the to the point of <laughs> that's, that's right <laughs> and recognizability. But this doesn't this 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 whole thing is not that 
not that operative materially or 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 in disciplinary terms. And this is like this is like the larger historical dynamic we we always have at the, in the back of our heads, right? Like there's a larger economic political economic crisis in the West, in capital, and thus in architecture. And architects can't bootstrap themselves out of it with an exhibition or with ideas. You are right that this is this is just an ideological project without any of the like operative political economic dimensions of 2016. There's no business side to this. Right. Other than just selling the ideological project itself. It's like, yeah, it, it makes it less interesting. There's yeah. less to say about it because it's more just normal architecture discourse. And you're right that it's because the crisis is so bad. But I, I do think it, it does show the, the way in which architecture effectively functions as an alternative to politics when it presents itself as political. Right. Specific, like it, the whole thing about the spatial contract. A spatial contract helps shape a social contract. The spatial contract is not the architectural manifestation of the new social contract. It's an alternative to the new social contract. Right? You, you give people a spatial contract, which is this ideological uh, performative thing, which with increasingly creepy right-wingy elements mm -hmm. to it, um, so that you don't have to give them a social contract. You give them a, an identitarian thing locus. to group around. Locus, yeah, exactly. You give them an identitarian locus. It, 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 we, there will be a lot of words ending in us. <laughs> you give them lots of words ending in us. <laughs> and then you don't need to give them public housing. Right. Should we give a, a little uh, preview of some of the themes we're going to cover in, in the next in next episodes? Yeah. Yeah, so we were thinking... Um, so far, we've focused a fair amount on kind of liberal, centrist, and fake left architecture. Right. Which basically is mainstream architecture right now. Yeah. But we wanted to also look at uh, the idea of explicitly right-wing architecture. Yeah. Like, what is right-wing architecture? So that's one thing we want to do. We want to cover actual concrete housing issues. Yeah, the actual issues that architects aesthetize, and we want to cover them in a non-aestheticized way. We want to cover particularly the way housing issues have been developing uh, in the last several years, but particularly now, yeah. and the, the, the new scale of the crisis that is going to happen. Uh, and we're going to talk with some uh, long-time housing activists uh, about that, comrades of ours, and et cetera, in some way in the next yeah. few episodes, too. That'll be like an interview episode? Yeah. Uh, and then we also, yeah. Yeah, we'd like to focus also on organization of architectural labor as well. Yeah. Uh, our architects organizing as workers. Uh, that will, So th there will be a couple of more, of less, uh, folk, like critique of architectural culture episodes. Yeah, there's only so much dunking you can do before your like hands get sore and your, your legs get tired. Right. Okay, so that that's going to be it. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.
Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. <laughs> Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. Correct. Okay, it works. I want to know what the courtyard for the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg is.